0: Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Ruri, a senior science writer here at TN and I'm delighted to be hosting today's episode. On this podcast we discuss the latest weird and wonderful science that has infiltrated our inboxes over the last few weeks and on today's episode I'm delighted to be joined by my colleagues Laura Lansdowne and Katie Brighton. How are you both doing?
1: Not bad, pretty good. It's a Friday, the sun's shining so can't complain really can we?
0: Absolutely, absolutely that's the spirit Uh, and (laughs) Yeah, we're gonna have some uh, gonna have some research to match that attitude today. So on this week's podcast, we're going to hear about a worm on a chip that could help diagnose cancer. From Laura, I'm going to tell you about a statistical quirk that could shake the foundations of a field of neuroscience. And Katie is going to tell us why caffeine could help alleviate some symptoms of ADHD. I'm really keen to hear about this one, Katie, because it really suggests there's some fundamental stuff I've misunderstood about ADHD. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Uh, but first, it's time for another lab confidential. Now, every lab has its tales of oh, <laughs> moments where fire alarms are set off, samples end up stored in a beer cooler, or postdoc mistakes a beaker of cell serum for some raspberry soda. Kate, you, ha- you were drinking something earlier, which I thought was we got, got there. <laughs> oh, got my
2: blackcurrant squash.
0: That could easily be some <laughs> folks, be, you know? I've it definitely really bathed some cells in that. So it's, it's it's but these things are possible, folks. And <laughs> these are the tales which everyone has, but no one wants to share publicly. I think it's like the true mythos of science. And then lab confidential, we take the best stories our listeners send in and read them to reveal the secrets of what goes on behind the scenes in your average lab. So this week we have a submission from Angus. Thank you very much, Angus. Uh so Angus wrote this, he says he's a first year PhD student and the title of his submission is Feeling for the Next Generation of Scientists. So, Angus says, as part of my PhD, I was expected to help in undergraduate labs, demonstrating as my university called it. The main duties of this were to ensure the safety of the students and help them complete their experiments in the designated time. On the whole, this was enjoyable, save dealing with hungover 20 year olds and the complaining about how difficult it was to get things to work. Welcome to science, yeah, that sounds alright. <laughs> <little> and <laughs> one particular student always sticks with me as someone who is unlikely to be a future Nobel Prize winner and the reason why I have trust issues in the lab. To get the undergrads started in the lab, the first experiment required them to dissolve different metal salts in water with some gentle heating. For anyone that's ever cooked anything, that's easy, right? I mean I haven't cooked with metal salts, I think that would add a bit of a tang to my carbonara, (laughs) but I know the the idea. Uh, Wrong! Fearing that they had been given a faulty hot plate, a standard piece of lab equipment that, as the name suggests, comprises a metal plate that gets hot, which is perfect for eating water, this particular student sought me out as the nearest demonstrator and explained that they plugged it in, turned it to maximum and nothing had happened. Knowing that the lab's electro equipment could be a little temperamental, I went with them to see what the problem was. Gesturing towards the hot plate, they decided the best way to demonstrate that it wasn't heating up was to place their palm directly on it. Now, from their reaction, I could tell that this was in fact working perfectly. As it turns out, they had expected it to heat from room temperature to over 150 degrees immediately. I should say that the burn was only minor and they were absolutely fine, but they did learn two important lessons that day, have some patience and that it's best not to test the temperature of something with your own body parts. I think that's valuable advice for all fields of life, not just science, just, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good job you didn't have a glove on because that could have melted, I guess, if you'd had a, well, did exactly. you have a glove on. Woo. That would have. Yeah, complicated things.
0: Remember, kids, find a thermometer or someone else's body parts and use those. <laughs> first a much better idea. Great thank you again Angus. So we can now move on to our stories for the week now Laura I believe you're going to tell us a little bit about a worm on a chip.
1: I am yeah so I'm going to be talking about um, the development of a worm on a chip device um, and how it could be potentially used to help diagnose lung cancer. Um, So recently uh, there's been quite a bit in the media about how animals mainly dogs can be used to kind of sniff out disease um i know kind of several kind of institutes and and some government agencies um have been exploring whether sniffer dogs could be used to detect covid-19 yeah. uh-huh. during the pandemic for like airports and things like that surveillance as so like biodetection tools um they've also been used um to study, they've also been um, demonstrating that dogs are able to identify cancer patients from various samples, so from urine and breath samples and blood samples. So this caught my eye because the idea that worms could be used to detect lung cancer is just wild really, isn't it? It It's just, it's another level. so, I guess before we dive into the study and talk a bit more about worms sniffing out cancer, uh, I thought it might be worth just highlighting why diagnosing cancer early is just so important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, the earlier you can diagnose a patient, um, the better chance they have of beating the cancer. So, their chances of survival increase. So, if you catch it early and um, before it's had a chance to metastasize, so spread to other areas of the body, obviously, you know, it's better. Um, Early diagnosis also helps healthcare professionals identify and administer treatments um, that are most effective early on. So it could be surgery to remove the tumour, maybe radiotherapy, targeted therapies. Um, And when they administer treatments earlier, they're usually easier to tolerate for the patients and can be less aggressive. So there are obviously big benefits as well. And so obviously there's already some diagnostic tools available to doctors to diagnose different cancers, including lung cancer. So um, there's imaging tools and biopsies. Um, But these methods can't usually detect tumors at the earliest stages. um, And traditional biopsies usually require surgery to obviously remove that tumor so that they can analyze it. So it's quite an invasive procedure. Um, And I think that's really where the interest in other detection strategies kind of originates. Um, Just to kind of, I guess, tie it back to lung cancer. Um, So the early detection of lung cancer has like a 56% survival rate. um, But if it's diagnosed late, it drops to just 5%. So that's such a huge difference. So just to kind of, that really emphasizes the importance, I guess. Um, So back to the study disclaimer so when we are saying worm on a chip we are not talking about the average earthworm that you may find in your garden mm-hmm. <laughs> the ones that Good my dog likes to I... pick up and run around with and roll all over um we're talking about um a specific type of worm a roundworm called c elegans um it's a popular experimental model it's um,
0: so popular it's
1: yeah. oh yeah um, and it feeds on microorganisms, um, they're tiny, so they're about a millimetre in length. Um, and obviously they're really popular in the lab, they're easy to grow in the lab, which is why they're so popular. Um, and they are known to be attracted or repelled by specific odours. So that's kind of why they're of interest for this study. Um, so. Researchers from Miyongji University in South Korea decided to see whether these worms could be used to sniff out lung cancer. So use them as a, as a cancer diagnostic test um, because it turns out that lung cancer cells um, produce a different set of odour molecules compared to healthy cells. So these um, odour molecules are sometimes also called volatile organic compounds as well, just in case you hear that term crop up somewhere. Um, so this chip that they created, I can probably put a picture actually when we, when we upload the podcast Rory, it's a clear rectangular piece of plastic. It looks like it's got um, a well at one end, a well at another end, a chamber in the middle, and then it's connected by channels. Um, And so at one end of the chip, they added a drop of culture media uh, with lung cancer cells. At the other end, they added media with um, normal lung fibroblasts and normal lung, lung cells. They placed the worms in the middle in the central chamber um, went away had a cup of tea came back after an hour <laughs> um, and they found that more worms had migrated towards the well containing um, lung cancer media rather than the normal media um, so to make sure this obviously was you know an actual finding they also repeated um, the experiment with worms that had a mutated odor receptor gene um, and they found that these worms didn't show this preferential behavior towards the cancer check the cancer well um, so they obviously knew that there was something there mm-hmm. um so based on these initial findings um they are very initial findings they were presented at the um, american chemical society spring um conference um they reckon at the moment that the device is about 70% effective at detecting cancer cells in this type of so in this in this culture media. And yeah. um, obviously, that's not to, like high enough to be kind of a, a medical diagnostic tool um, at the moment. But they're hoping to obviously do further research and studies to try and increase the accuracy and sensitivity of the method. Um, and one way to do this is to use worms that were, have previously been exposed uh, to that cancer cell media, so they have a memory of these of these odour molecules. Um, they actually mentioned in in a press release related to the study, they're not actually sure why they're, you know, they like the smell of these molecules, but one of the authors said that perhaps they smell the sa- similar to their favourite foods, so that's why they kind of home in on these, uh, home in oh, on the is. cancer cells. Um, and yeah, once they've kind of, optimize this chip and they're also hoping to obviously take it beyond just cultured uh, lung cancer cells in media they want to try and test it um using urine saliva and and exhale breath and things like that to just see obviously how feasible it is as a detection with those those sample types as well so i just thought it was a really kind of easy to follow study obviously it's early early stages but just was really really interesting so
0: yeah, I mean my favorite thing about this is that you get a lot of these if listeners aren't familiar, these innovations that are X on a chip, you know, they have organ on a chip, they have mm-hmm. brain on a chip, you know, all these things are on a chip, but they're not actually on the chip, whereas here the worm is on the chip. It and is like, on
1: a chip. Yeah, it's the chip moving get
0: on a the chip. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think as well, obviously these studies with with dogs um and and bio de- as biodetection tools are really really impressive but also like the feet, like the kind of practicality of that compared uh-huh. to this small chip device that's kind of can be used in a lab obviously the worms are easy to grow like there's the training element to it as well that obviously with dogs you have to obviously train them and so i think like in terms of that like i think it's it's quite a promising kind of concept really so i think it'd be it's interesting
2: just- to know as well like whether other diseased cells could be used in a similar way, mm-hmm. yeah, um, for stuff that's not necessarily cancer, but yeah. another cellular disease or mm.
1: well, other types of cancer as well, I guess. Yeah, because obviously this is specific to lung cancer. So yeah, definitely. Um, because obviously the dog, the studies with dogs have shown obviously cancer, COVID nineteen, like I guess any. I guess depending on these um these compounds, um, if they're obviously um these volatile organic compounds, if they are kind of present in other in other diseases, then there's definitely that possibility. So, yeah.
0: But a of people trying to stratify worms by like their food fr- food preferences, you know? Yeah.
1: Like,
0: These will be the liver <laughs> cancer worms because they love this type. I mean, what do, what what do C. elegans eat? Probably not very much.
1: And uh, um, they so they eat microorganisms, and they use this odor uh-huh. kind of mechanism to to find you know food sources. So that's kind of where it stems from. Um. So yeah, but.
0: Go C. elegans.
1: Yeah, impressive. One millimeter in length. They're doing a lot, so quite
0: impressive. Great stuff, Laura. Thanks for sharing (laughs) that with us.
1: No problem.
0: Now, I wanted to take um, the next speaker's slot, if that's okay, to talk about a statistical quirk that has undermined, I think, a a pretty significant area of neuroscience research. Now, the replication crisis in biology more widely and in, in neuroscience has been well known. For you know, decades at this point. Um, this essentially refers to the issue whereby a large swathe of neuroscience studies cannot be replicated when they're essentially tried by a, a different lab to find the same results using the same techniques. And the reasons for this are varied. Uh, sometimes it's due to there being inadequate data available on how a, a lab did an experiment, uh, but more often there is issues with how the original studies were designed that have kind of set these studies that that can be replicated up to fail from the beginning. So the type of study under the microscope, as it were, in this review, which I'm going to be talking about today, which was conducted by researchers at Washington University School of Medicine and was published in Nature, uh, are studies called brain-wide association studies, which essentially is a term that the authors have made up in this study, but it refers to a very specific style of study and I think it's quite a good description. So, uh, Katie Laura, I don't know if you've heard of um, GWAS studies, genome-wide association studies?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you I have I've heard the term. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
0: with these guys, you know, the, the aim of a GWAS is to link um, particular gene signatures or genotypes to uh, phenotypes like particular uh, behaviors or diseases and try and form links between them. Now, GWAS have been around since the, you know, the middle of the the first decade of this century, and they've grown in power a lot since they started. But in the same sense, brain-wide association studies are efforts to link particular neuroimaging signatures. So you know, people that are put through MRI scanners, for example, and have brain scans taken of their activity levels in the brain, efforts to coordinate those signatures with complex behavioral phenotypes, so much in the same way that geneticists have been linking genes to. Uh, behavioural phenotypes. This is linking brain activities and brain scans uh, to behavioural activities. So that's what a a BWAS study is, a brain-wide association study, and that's what this research is focusing on. So what I should say is that a BWAS study doesn't mean all neuroimaging research. Neuroimaging is used, it's so routine in neuroscience these days, you know, since it um, really came of age in the last few decades of the 20th century, it's now used for you know virtually any neuroscience study has at some point relied on data taken from neuroimaging so you know some of these foundational studies aren't really affected by the, the research I'm talking about today so for example you know we're not going to see that because of issues with um, replication you know findings like the hippocampus is the area of the brain responsible for memory that's not going to be overturned because there's tons and tons of data from different groups all showing that this particular area of the brain is responsible for this task but BWAS studies in trying specifically to link complex behavioural phenotypes like for example um, psychiatric conditions to brain areas uh, there's a kind of different target being produced so while the way I put it in the article which you can read through the the link in, in this podcast is well it would be a kind of medical marvel if you found a brain that didn't use hippocampus to recall memory, for example, it would be far more common to find two people with both with treatment resistant depression that have different levels of brain activity. You know, that's, it's a much more heterogeneous varied area. So that means that the size of the association involved is far smaller. Now, when you have a small effect size in any scientific study, so the, the kind of magnitude of the change you're looking for is tiny, What that means is you need to compensate for that by having a really powerful study. Now, what I mean by power is in terms of the number of samples and the amount of data being analysed. So uh, in neuroimaging studies, this typically means having lots of different scans of lots of different people's brains. Now, what uh, the researchers, and I spoke to one of the the authors of this study, Dr. Scott Marek, did in this research was to essentially use Some of the beefiest, biggest magnum opuses of BWAS research as a a marker for how this research should be conducted. So they took data from three programmes, the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, the Human Connectome Project and the UK Biobank, which together represent nearly 50,000 brain scans worth of data, which is a huge amount. Now, they took this real data set and then used a stats technique called bootstrapping, And what this does essentially is create a series of virtual data sets based on the the spread of data contained in the real data sets to create these virtual sample sizes. And these can range from anywhere up to thousands of scans, as there were in the original data, down to much more small data set sizes, so say like an N of 10 or 15. Now, what they then did was essentially using these fake data sets they created they modelled how accurate and reproducible the findings from these different sample sizes were, uh, which essentially enabled them to tell, you know, if you have an N of 10, how reproducible and accurate your findings. If you have an N of 1,000, how different is that uh, value? So the team found that regardless of size, the types of association analyzed specifically in BWAS studies were really prone to being inflated by chance. What that meant is the findings from these smaller studies were largely reproducible. Only once the experiments were modeled with thousands of brain scans did the inflated effect sizes begin to reduce. Now, I have been, you know, considering the, the findings of this study over the last few weeks, and I feel it's... I, I don't feel like it's got enough attention, really, because I notice when I report on neuroscience research that these type of studies are really in vogue right now. Like, you know, it's, it's been a, a valuable tool to be able to look inside, um, the, you know, the human brain since neuroimaging techniques came of age. But especially now, um, psychiatry and uh, psychology have began to use the techniques as well. These efforts to link it to behaviour have become really, really popular in these fields. And... You know, I, I think I, I see studies every week almost that seem to model these particular BWAS study designs. And I think, you know, how many of these have ends of a thousand plus, virtually none. Uh, guys, I'd like you to guess if you can, what the average neuroimaging study size or rather the median, I should say, neuroimaging sample size is in BWAS studies. So if, if you know, a thousand plus is the, the target, what do you think the median medium size is right now?
1: I'm thinking it's gonna be low because I reckon I'm gonna go I'm gonna go 100 I'm gonna go around there Katie what what do you
2: think I was thinking even lower potentially but I could I could be completely wrong I was imagining somewhere around like 25 because I've imagined stud like BWAS studies to be really small cohorts Mm
0: -hmm. Katie is almost on the money the answer (gasps) is 23.
1: two out Katie well done
0: that's great. We'll have to have some kind of prize for guessing stats. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's twenty three. So we're talking, you know, magnitudes lower than are required to meet the bar of reproducibility. Mm-hmm. Now, Marek, when I talked to him, he was also quite careful not to, you know, disparage all of neuroimaging research because, uh, you know, other types of neuroimaging analysis are more dependable at these smaller sample sizes. But specifically these BWAS studies connecting behavior to neuroimaging results that really need these bigger, um, mm-hmm. bigger sample sizes. Now
1: Rory, what is the reason for that? Like why are those sample sizes so small? Is it just
0: it's cost, Laura? So okay. MRI scans, you know, cost a lot of money. And essentially the labs doing a lot of these research, a lot of this research are taking it from quite a I think an observational point of view. So they are mm-hmm. investigating new findings and saying, you know, if there's disassociation, association could be scaled up but that necessarily sure. means that the initial findings are based on these small sample sizes, you know, they haven't got the, the funding to say to their, I'm sure they would if they could say to their funders, you know, we want to find out if this brain scan region links to uh, this condition, please give us 50 million for it, you know, it's not how mm-hmm. it's, it's been working for these sample sizes. So, um, you know, what Marek said, he, you know, he gave a solution to this crisis. Uh, but it's you know, I don't think it's a you know, it's it's maybe straightforward, but I don't know how practical it is. Essentially you just need more funding and you need to, like GWAS studies have done, start to aggregate findings together. So for a bit of context, GWAS studies when they first began to be used in the the middle of the first decade of this century were also hugely underpowered. You know, you'd get all these associations that just weren't found when researchers tried them again. Now because the cost of genomic sequencing has crashed. And because of these initial issues, GWAS studies now have, you know, sample numbers into the millions. They're much, much bigger. Um, Whereas the number of BWAS studies using imaging techniques that involve thousands of of scans, you know, it's it's very few. These three uh, resources I mentioned are, are, you know, a few of a very small number of, of bigger studies. So he essentially says that if we want to, you know, spend our money wisely and invest in research that is, not false and is you know, true findings that can be verified later on. We need to start aggregating, aggregating research together and, and creating these bigger sample sizes. But it's just meant that ever since I read about this study, every you know one I see that connects a, an imaging approach to um, a particular phenotype, I'm constantly looking to see what the sample size is. You know, what is it? Is it twenty three?
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah. No, it's a very good good point. And I guess like in terms of, you said obviously the practicality could be an issue in terms of it's a solution, but really, you know, funding, increasing funding, I guess, you know, the more we talk about it and the importance of it, you know, the better chance there is that maybe,
0: you know. I, you know, I mean, I, I guess even at the start of the 20th, 21st century, you know, the idea that We'd be sequencing genomes for under 100 dollars for example probably would have been alien you know they would say that oh, No, it would never work so maybe it just requires a similar approach to neuroimaging technologies you know can we make these scanners smaller cheaper to use you know it's obviously a fundamentally different technology so i think that's going to be the biggest challenge to see if the same reductions in cost if you know researchers put their mind to it and recognize this is the huge issue it is for neuroscience they put their minds together and focus on improving the technology. Can we overcome this? I think is a big question. Mm-hmm, definitely. Now we have one final study today to talk about and Katie, I think you're up and it's an interesting connection between caffeine and ADHD. So we'd love to hear more. Yeah,
2: definitely. So it's a recent review that was conducted by the Universitat Oberta de Catalunya. Sorry, that was probably terrible pronunciation. Um, and it looked into um, a series of 13 studies that have been carried out over the last 25 years um, into whether caffeine could help treat some of the symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. Um, so when I saw this review cross my inbox this week, I was, it kind of took me aback because I'd always pictured like the presentation of ADHD, you know, as someone with a lot of energy, they can't sit still and then like super easily distracted. And things like that. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but when I've had too many cups of coffee, you know, I'm practically bouncing off the walls. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I just thought that, you know, introducing caffeine to treat these symptoms is just really intriguing. Um, so firstly, I'll explain a little bit about why the research team, which was led by Diego Rodola, wanted to review the studies that explore how caffeine affects ADHD symptoms. So, ADHD is the most commonly diagnosed and treated mental condition in children. Um, So, 5% of children, so that's one or two per class of, say, 20, um, Mm. are affected by it. Um, And the current treatment options are medication, cognitive behavioural therapy, or a a combination of both. But the medications that are used currently, um, they are largely stimulants, like caffeine, um, but their use is quite controversial because of the fact they have some quite... Um, they have some side effects so the most worrying of those for adolescents specifically is the fact that they cause like a loss of appetite so the okay. children either lose weight or have problems gaining weight um, there's also a slight in ch- a chance of an increase in blood pressure um, and they can all these side effects can also include like headaches dizziness and trouble sleeping okay
1: I think they're always a bit kind of flags are up and kind of You know, whenever it's like a pediatric or kind of adolescent population, aren't they? So, yeah,
2: definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, how would caffeine work to treat these ADHD symptoms? That was kind of like my first question. So, on a molecular level, the symptoms of ADHD arise from differences in primarily dopamine and norepinephrine circuits and serotonin, glutamate, and acetylcholine signaling pathways in various areas of the brain. So, the dopamine receptors in particular are paired to adenosine receptors. So, when the dopamine binds to its receptor, it sort of stimulates a response um, that kind of regulates motivation. However, when adenosine binds, the sensitivity of the dopamine receptors is reduced. So, you don't see that kind of motivational behavior. But if we introduce caffeine into the mix, it kind of antagonizes the adenosine receptor. So, it prevents the binding of adenosine. And increases the dopaminergic signalling, so you then get that motivational behaviour regulation. This review that I looked at, it ha- looked at thirteen different studies in animal models of ADHD. So they used um, four different uh, animal models, two of which were genetic models of ADHD, and two of which were epigenetic models. And over the thirteen studies, different researchers had um, employed different sort of tasks that represented. Um, trialling a symptom of ADHD and then compared how caffeine affects that symptom. Um, So for example, there was a study that looked at spatial learning and memory um, of a rat model of ADHD compared to normal rats. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of assessed the performance of these animals in um, like a maze test after like a single dose of caffeine. Um, and they found that this pre-training caffeine treatment enhanced the spatial learning ability of the ADHD model, and it didn't change the blood pressure of this mouse model either.
1: Yeah, especially if one of the concerns, obviously, with the traditional kind of medication options is is that um, increasing blood pressure as well. So, they're probably,
2: yeah, promising. Yeah. yeah.
0: What other uh, behavioural methods did they try?
2: Um, so, there was a maze assay, a water maze assay as well. So, I, had, I presume mm. the mice were Going through water, um, sort of memory assays there were as well. So kind of, and as well as that, there was how the mice or rats responded to food, um, and how motivated they were.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and and the mice were just as as keen to eat the food as they were before, which is the other side effect of the the conventional medication, right? Yeah, yeah. Good.
2: Um. So the review overall kind of concluded that caffeine treatment increases attention and improves learning and memory in these animal models without changing the blood pressure or body weight of these animals which is pretty positive um, but um, in some of the studies the caffeine dosage did produce sort of like increased movement um, increased impulsivity in these animal like models caffeine, yeah.
0: which mm-hmm.
2: which yeah is not what they're looking to do. Um, But what was interesting is the fact that um, the caffeine dosage that produced the increased movement, it was very dependent on age and sex. So the male mice, um, especially young male mice, were more likely to exhibit this kind of increased movement, uh, the increased impulsivity, compared to older or female mice. So I thought that was quite
1: interesting. I find it interesting as well if we're talking about different therapeutics and things like that. Obviously there is that potential bias in clinical studies and I guess preclinical studies in terms of the models and you know the sex of the animals or the patients that are involved because obviously if you're talking clinical studies usually you're, you're avoiding women of childbearing age and older older populations of patients you know typically you look at clinical trial protocol and it's 18 to 65 years isn't it things like that so mm-hmm. I think these like I guess a broader consideration is 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 those types
2: of things as well um yeah but yeah really interesting yeah it's so the other thing that I noticed about this study was that ADHD actually has three different presentations in people. Um, So yeah, there's the primarily hyperactive impulsive type, which is Mm -hmm. sort of what we talked about earlier, how it's that kind of can't sit still, um, limited attention span, things like that. But there's also a predominantly inattentive type. So Mm. that's sort of troubles focusing, but not necessarily in the super hyperactive way. Um, And there's also the combined type, but the study doesn't specify how the models reflect those three different presentations in people. So I think it'd be in- more interesting to see whether caffeine would treat the symptoms of ADHD more effectively in, say, someone who has the primarily inattentive type compared to primarily hyperactive impulsive type.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. And that's
0: just, I yeah, you know, I just wonder, obviously it's not part of the, the study, but you you wonder how if if it's it becomes that um, granular, you know, you break it down, and you get these increasing number of subtypes, you wonder how consistent diagnoses are between different clinicians, you know, how likely it is, for example, that a boy would be diagnosed with one particular subtype versus a girl being diagnosed with a particular subtype and it becomes pretty complicated. So yeah, absolutely, as you say, like tying down a, a model that's faithful to as you know, as personalised subtitle as subtitles you can get is is so important.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Fab. Well, thank you very much, Katie. And thank you very much, Laura, for sharing your scientific stories with me today. Uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed this latest episode of Opinionated Science. And a big thank you to Angus, of course, for his lab confidential story. So uh, that's all for now, but until next time, please do like, share and subscribe to Opinionated Science. And as always, please let us know what you think. Don't keep your opinions to yourself.